This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Ethan McMahon is an actor and voiceover artist who is one of the most in-demand Irish audiobook narrators. Her range is astonishing. She's appeared in lead roles for the Royal Shakespeare Company and in numerous celebrated television dramas on both sides of the Atlantic, including as Mary Bundle Keane in the Canadian TV miniseries Random Passage, for which she won the Gemini Award in 2002 for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Aoife has narrated over 200 audiobooks, holds a degree in English, is an avid reader and a nascent writer. Her recent accolades include numerous audiophile awards and a place in the top 10 audiobooks as listed by the Irish Times, the New York Times and Amazon's top picks. Knowing that her readings will feature in at least a couple of upcoming episodes, I thought it time I should invite her onto the show to get the narrator's side of the story. Before she joins us in person, here's a clip of her narrating Sheila Armstrong's short story, Hole, from the collection How to Gut a Fish. The weakness in the soil first appeared at dusk in the centre of a ring of stones in a field. A small copse of trees weaves around banks of raised earth, and the exposed roots of a yew tree frame the slabs of an ancient portal tomb. The field belongs to a farmer who believes this corner does not really belong to him at all, and he prefers to leave the fairy fort well enough alone. He takes care to follow the well-worn route of his cattle closely as they pass through the field. He avoids it at night because the grass is hungry and may not let him leave. Whitethorn blooms here in summer, and in autumn circles of mushrooms sprout in brown formation. But this year the winter has been so wet that the rain has been constant, and the level of the water table has risen far enough to press its head against the roof of the earth, kneading and marking like a gentle tide. Layers of soil have fallen away from the weakness in between the stones, setting more layers in motion. Above the field, the December light streaks off into the red horizon, and the horizon after that. Grass plinks as the longest night of the year begins. The centre of the stones darken, and the collapse of the topsoil into a deep sinkhole comes all in a sunset rush. The air trembles like a bent sheet of tin. A stone wall separates a green-spined boreen from the field, and the concrete sags in the middle like an underbaked cake. The road has flooded from the heavy rain, two metres wide and a handspan deep. The puddle has frosted over the past few nights, but the temperature has risen a little from the bitter depths of November. So at twilight it teeters on the edge of freezing. Aoife McMahon, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, it's lovely to meet someone who I think I and so many of our listeners are going to feel have been part of our lives over the last few years. You've narrated so many great audiobooks. And I think from that clip, we can hear why you are such a, a popular choice. You, you really capture that haunting lyricism and sense of people living on the edge both physically, in terms of the Atlantic coast, and emotionally. Yeah, I mean, I, I love her writing, and you hit on one of my favourite words there when it comes to how I choose what I read myself for pleasure, and that would be lyrical. And I think it's a quality that lots of Irish writers embody. And I do read, not exclusively, of course, but I, I do read for a lot of, as you said, really great Irish writers and consider myself very fortunate that way. And Sheila uses that sort of sparing lyrical writing to unsettle you in some way, you know, that that um, impending darkness that's in whole one of the, the stories in How to Got a Fish, her, her collection. 
you just really feel that impending sense of of darkness but there's something also very seductive about it almost mm. almost gentle luring you in yeah there's a real sense of spirituality in in the landscape something as you say luring you in mm. a, a comfort as well as a, a potential threat but maybe it's in the way the character approaches the landscape if they want to be part of nature then it's not threatening if they're against nature then possibly it might consume them yes and i, I think alongside nature in in whole so obviously this this hole appears in the middle of a a farmer's field on a dark solstice night winter solstice but it's in a fairy ring so you've got that added element of the mystical the magical with a fairy fort actually with um stones around it and in ireland there's still a very strong belief in all of that stuff like there was a motorway being built near where my parents live in County Clare and there was a fairy tree right in the middle of where about three roads intersected and nobody would cut it down because you would just have bad luck forever. So with this hole, yeah, it is as though it's part of nature, but something deeper, something darker and it's alive. And it's almost like we as the reader are seeing the people who uh, interact with this landscape from the view of the landscape itself. Like that hole is an aperture, an eye, or maybe a mouth or both together or something like that, that it's observing those who dare to come near. Yeah, and I wonder if part of that spirituality in the landscape is a result of the fact that I know in, in primary school in Ireland, folklore and history are, are taught together. Folklore mm -hmm. is part of Irish history. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Um, we're taught Irish myths. Not all of them have survived, but particularly the Ulster cycle of myths. So you've got your Ku Collins and your Fionn McCools, your Queen Maves. We're taught about goddesses, Danu, Morrigan, and those those tales growing up are kind of almost told as history or part of our history or part of our identity. And they, again, are very much entwined in the landscape because we have so many sort of Neolithic stone forts and dolmens uh, scattered across the landscape. They're just kind of part of life for us. And I remember learning a song, O Roche de Vahawalia. It's about this pirate queen who became a symbol of Irish independence. And I just assumed she was another myth. And I was an adult before I realised she was real. She was a 16th century pirate, Grania Whale, or Grace O'Malley in English. So that kind of mixing of history with myth is very much part of how we tell stories, I suppose. It's one of the things I've always loved about Irish literature is that you do have that sense of the mythology in your history. It, it's very beguiling. I think, you know, we, we're we in this, I think, new golden age of Irish literature. And, and, and you're the go-to narrator for Claire Keegan and for Sally Rooney and, and all these really big names in Irish literature. How did you get into being an audiobook narrator? Well, it really just sort of grew as an extension of my acting work. Because beside my acting work, I always did voiceover work. As an actor, you have to have many strings to your bow if you want to pay the mortgage, basically. <laughs> and uh, I was doing adverts, cartoon voices, corporate work, computer games. And uh, a few years into my career, I got invited to narrate my first audiobook. Back then, you might get one or two of those a year. Whereas now um, it's become increasingly busy and it had built up before COVID, but I suppose partly because I have my own recording studio, when COVID hit and all the studios had to shut down, I found myself overwhelmed with work. I had a superhuman amount of, of work, which was fantastic as all the theatres and everywhere else had, had shut. So uh, it's grown exponentially as audiobooks have become a larger part of the wider publishing industry and people listen to them for all sorts of, of reasons, be it because that they can't read for whatever reason or they find it difficult or they don't have the concentration or they just want to take the hard work out of it and let somebody else do it for them and tell them a story. It's a thing we all love, I think, in many forms.
And, and I certainly know quite a lot of my sighted friends who are very happy to have an audio book on the go for when their eyes are tired from having stared at a computer all day. And, uh, and so they'll be reading one book in print and another book in audio and probably listening to a podcast as well. Yeah, I read paper books still because I read so, so much for work. And as you say, staring at screens, listening to books for me would probably be a bit of a busman's holiday. So I like a paper <laughs> book, but my partner, who's uh, he, has, he has dyslexia, um, but he loves books and he loves to read. For, for him, for example, audiobooks have been a godsend and he started to read again with his ears. And it is a very immersive experience and I, I think takes us back to those days where our parents would read us our bedtime story. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when I was little, we used to move around a lot. I'm one of five children and we could be visiting my granny at opposite ends of the country. It would be a long, long journey on winding roads and audiobooks weren't so much available then. I think we did have some on vinyl, but my dad used to tape stories and we'd listen to those cassettes on the journeys. And I was in my brother's house a few months ago and we went up into the attic and found one of those cassette tapes and I turned it into an MP3 so I could play it for him on Father's Day. And it was just wonderful to hear it again. Oh, wonderful. So, well, it was in your DNA then, Aoife. <laughs> Absolutely. As they say in Ireland, it wasn't from the stones I licked it. <laughs> <laughs> so can you take us a little bit through the process? Generally, if, say, Sally Rooney is publishing a new book, will her publisher come to you and various other narrators and, and ask you to audition and would that audition be recording a few pages of it and sending it off as an MP3? Or now that you've got the Sally Rooney gig, are you fairly much guaranteed to get her next book? It happens in various ways. Often you will be approached because they, they may have already heard something else that you've narrated that the author and publisher think that your voice is suitable for, for their work. With the Sally Rooney gig, I think yeah, it was just offered. Um, but also you can audition, as it were. So attached to a studio, there usually be a casting person and they will suggest maybe three or four voices to the author and publisher. And each of us will send off two minutes. If we have the manuscript, it will be of the book itself. And if not, just of any, any work of literature. And uh, the author and publisher will listen to that and make a choice. And once you've been chosen, do you have much contact with the author? Do you send them pronunciation questions if they've used a particularly strange word? Or generally, are you left up to your own devices, you and, you and the producer? Um, there's usually no formal setup of contact, but I do find it incredibly useful to be in touch with the author if I can. So I'll often just do that myself through social media. Or some of the authors will reach out to me via my agent or whatever, and we'll we'll swap email addresses. And that is incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. um, I just finished a book. I was uh, co-narrating it with Aidan Kelly. And um, the author at the end of the book, because there were 54, 57 characters, something like that, she had a list of them and a little note that this one is Polish, that one's from Dublin, whatever it might be. And um, that saves me uh, an awful lot of prep time and kind of forensically digging through the book for clues. Yeah. But also it saves me making arbitrary decisions and hopefully allows me to be closer to the author's intention. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, because I no noticed that you were one of six narrators reading The Guest List by Lucy Foley back in 2020. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. And yeah, if one of you decides that that person's going to have a Belfast accent or a Newcastle accent, then that could actually trip everybody else up <laughs> when, they're, uh, when they're then reading reported speech from that character later in the book. Yeah, that could go horribly wrong. Um, so usually in that kind of situation, we will be put in touch with each other, the various readers. So we'll just have a little email chain and you can send, um, obviously, voice notes on that. 
or just I've decided to make this fella Scottish. So is everybody on board with that? And uh, we, we try to be consistent and not confuse the listener. And what happens when you're narrating a book by, say, Marion Keyes, who, who's a very well-known public voice, who, who most of us know from the radio or the television? Do, do you set out to imitate or distance yourself from her voice? Oh, uh, somewhere in between. So I... I mean, a lot of the work I read for Marianne Keyes is, is fiction, but I did do, uh, I don't know if it's an autobiography, but sort of a, a spoken diary, if you like, called Making It Up As I Go Along. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did listen to Marianne's voice, but I made no attempt to do an impersonation. So I did try to get her energy and tone, let's say, and something fairly close to her accent. But I didn't try to do her. She has a very distinctive voice. Mm. And for me to try and imitate that would sound very silly indeed. But um, yeah, I try to represent her without imitating her. And generally, when you're reading a novel like one of hers, it's got quite a big cast of characters and you're narrating it by yourself. Do you go through marking up the script I know back in the days of pens and paper, yeah. narrators would mark up, you know, character A would be underlined in purple and character B would be underlined in green, just as a, an aid memoir. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite often they'd have a piece of paper beside them going purple equals Newcastle accent or whatever. Do you still do that yourself? Yeah, you said the dreaded words there, a Newcastle accent. Um, I do indeed. Yeah, I work on an iPad and I use iAnnotate, an app, to do just what you've described. So I go through and I mark up each character, just, just in the one colour actually, each character, any clues I can find about them, where they were born, where they've moved to, have they travelled, uh, what's their education like? etc etc you know what's their emotional state any clue to their their accent and voice and that could be a physical clue they could be a larger person they might have a beaky nose they might be a smoker anything like that so i'll I'll go through and I'll, i'll mark that up anything to do with uh say geography or or place um or pronunciations anything in a different language i'll mark that up in a different color And then I will go through the script again and collate all of that information on old fashioned bits of paper that I can pin up on the wall with everyone's character name and big black marker and all of the clues I've found written beneath. And when it's pinned in front of me, I can refer to it. And then if they're speaking quickly, if they're agitated, if they're whispering, I write all of that at the beginning of the dialogue so you don't come to the end of an argument and find out that it was whispered and you have to do it over again. Oh, well, so actually in in that respect, it's a a little bit like a a police crime wall that you've got. It is uh... a bit forensic, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Fantastic. And I know a lot of authors would say they're, they're a bit like magpies picking up bits and pieces of people's speech or movement or things that they overhear in cafes and buses and so on and so forth. Is that how you build up your repertoire of voices? Are you always listening out for that kind of slight twang of a a voice and go, oh, I could probably use that for such and such a character? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Nothing's wasted and you're never switched off. It's the same when, when you're an actor. Um, when I'm on the bus or whatever, I will definitely be listening in on the phone conversation next to me. I was on holiday in Iceland this last winter and I was recording taxi drivers and people on tour buses getting the Icelandic accent, which I love. My mother-in-law, who's from southeast London, she's got this fantastic London accent. I'll be taping her. So, yeah, magpie is a good way of describing it or listening to the radio I'll record snatches of like whatever's on the news. Like at the moment, I just know there will be in Irish novels, there are going to be more Ukrainian characters coming up because because of the situation there and because Ireland has thankfully kind of opened up its homes. So we have um, quite a large Ukrainian population now. So I will be kind of preparing myself for that and listening to the nuances and how they speak there and just taking a little voice note on my phone. And during the recording process, I take it you're 
still recording with a producer at the other end who, whether you're in a studio with him or recording remotely, um, has got a copy of the script and they're checking off that you are reading the script correctly, your your eye hasn't jumped a line or whatever. Um, do you tend to work with the same producers or do you find that you get different producers for every recording? The answer to that is that it just varies wildly. When I'm recording from home, I am producing as well and and doing the recording. And I generally do punch and roll, which for anyone who, who is not familiar with that. So you're recording yourself when you make a mistake, you stop the recording, you drop yourself back in at the point of the mistake, and then you re-record over it. So you're doing a very, very rough first edit, basically. Um, so that's how I record from home. And I, the vast majority of time, am my own producer in that case. Mm. And the other way when I'm working with a producer in a studio would be fluff and repeat, which does give you greater flow in the narrative, but it makes the editing side of things a little bit more difficult. So when I make a mistake, I just pause. The producer will mark that place in the script for the editor and then I carry on. I do like it when I'm working with the same producer for a whole book because a book will take you sort of three or four days usually. And um, again, the, the producers vary wildly because some of them come from the literary publishing side and have actually read the book. And But often it's they come from more the technical side of the industry and will not even have read the book. So they're there to record and make sure that the recording goes OK and the sound levels are matching up for each day's recording. And even within that, you can get different people each day, depending on, on the studio and how they work. So um, often the producing side of things and the creative choices, if you like, are down to me. But I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm very comfortable with that because I'm so experienced. And I was lucky because I started this when I was younger and the industry was different then. So I was guided through by directors and producers and engineers, technicians. So I, I got to go on that kind of slow learning curve with them. And I have that experience to bring to bear now. Which is presumably why you make it sound effortless. Do you have many retakes? And you know how, how many hours a day will you do before your brain just goes, right, that's it, I've had enough, I need a cup of tea and to watch wildlife out of the window rather than <laughs> read a book? Yeah. Um, yes, there's only so much you can, you can physically and mentally do because it is also a very physical job. Um, and even the sitting still part of it is, is tough in your body, so you've got to get up and, and stretch. So generally in studio, we would work from about 10 until five, something like that, with a lunch break in between and a couple of tea breaks. So you usually go for an hour and a half stretch at a time. And yes, I make loads of mistakes um, <laughs> naturally. And uh, but that's OK, because you can. It's not live. So you can just stop and record over. But um, I do I do like to get into a flow and you do find that you, you can go you know, a couple of pages or, or whatever without fluffing. Um, and, and that is better, but it's it's not something to overly concern yourself with. I think if you're very prepared, it helps as well. So if you come across complicated phrasing in a script, you can kind of group together phrases so that they make sense. Or if you're coming up to a list and there are five things in the list, you might just write five on the first mm. part of that list. So you know where you're going with the sentence. Yeah, I, I always find that lists sort out the good narrators from the bad. <laughs> a, a, a good narrator will make a list sound interesting and progressive, and a bad narrator will just make it sound percussive. I always think one of the most difficult things is to read a history book without it sounding like fact after fact after fact after fact, which can send the listener asleep, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't done many history books, but I have done sort of real life stories. But I don't know if they're well written. I suppose half the work mm. is done for me. And when it comes to reading fiction, 
Is there much of a difference between reading a work of literary fiction such as Sheila Armstrong or I know you read Colm Tobin's The South and say something a bit more pacey like one of Sam Blake's page-turning thrillers? Um, I don't think my approach is any different, really. I mean, in how I prepare, I suppose with Sam Blake's books, because she's, you know, she's such a master of the twist, Mm. you really have to be on top of every little clue that's dropped along the way so that obviously you're ahead of, of the listener. But also, I suppose the trick is not to give anything away. So let's say there is a character voice throughout in in the first person. Maybe it's from a diary or, or something like that, or maybe it's first person narration. And uh, it turns out that they're the one what done it. Um, mm-hmm. They might have a strong accent, but you can't do it. You know, you can't give that away. You have to keep that neutral in a way that you wouldn't have to with literary fiction. And as you say, to be aware of of the the pace and where to kind of let it stretch out, where Sam might be creating atmosphere for the book and then the pace where it's driving forward and it's getting really quite thrilling or or frightening. So uh, to, to pick up on the tone that uh, she as an author has provided me with and, right. and to try and do that justice, yeah, would be very important in, in the thrillers, in the crime writing. I mean, obviously, you read a, a, a very wide range of books and um, some can be a bit more visceral than others. Has there ever been a time that you have just felt hugely embarrassed reading something out or, or been reduced to a fit of the giggles? <laughs> um, I don't know if I've been reduced to a fit of the giggles, but... Maybe actually you mentioned Marion Keys earlier and a Newcastle accent and having to be this like deep voiced, really sexy Geordie guy in sex scenes. I'd say I was reduced to fits <laughs> of giggles then. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there have been other times where I have been reduced to tears, like especially when it's um, real life stories. I read a book called The Baby Snatchers by Mary Creighton, or Crichton, I'm afraid I don't know how to pronounce that. Sorry, Mary. And that was a real-life account of a woman who had survived the mother and baby homes, Mm -hmm. the Magdalene laundries, and had three children taken from her. And, wow, just her, her strength and instinct for survival and her spirit... By the end of the book, I I couldn't keep it together. So the end of that book is a bit defiantly tearful, and I decided to leave it that way. But when I came out from recording, my my partner looked at me and went, oh, my God, who's dead? (laughs) No, no, I've just been so moved by this story. It's it's impossible to hear it and, and not be, I suppose. I enjoyed your narration of Dr. Molly Coyne's book, Love In, Love Out, A Compassionate Guide to Looking After Your Anxious Child, which which I think you read with just the degree of sensitivity that Dr. Coyne wrote it with. It was really written and narrated from the heart. And I think, you know, as somebody who had an anxious child, it it was very helpful to hear that overriding emotion come out in the way that the book was presented to me. Yeah, I mean, I just have to give full credit to the author there, because when something is written with that amount of compassionate intelligence and research and humanity, you know, it's it's my responsibility and my job to to give voice to that as sensitively as I can. So that's all down to her, really. I did really enjoy that. I found it very insightful. Do you have a preferred genre, something that you go, oh, goody, I'm going to be narrating one of those? Um, yes, I've already said literary fiction. We've mentioned a few authors there. Um like Jacqueline O'Mahony's book, Sing, Wild Birds Sing. Was mm-hmm. I hadn't come across her before, but again, that sense of mythology and connection to nature and a big journey emotionally and geographically. Um, I love Jess Kidd. I'm reading one of her books at the moment just, just for fun. And I did her book, The Hoarder, and her writing lights me up. I just love it. 
Um, I love as well young adult and children's because you get to play, you know, like listening to those tapes of, of my dad from long ago. Um, I did a lovely trilogy called the Wild Magic Trilogy, and that was by Celine Kiernan. And in that, the young heroine is um, a girl who finds there's another world at the bottom of her garden and that her grandmother is this evil high witch and that uh, there her dog can speak and her best friend is a crow who can shapeshift. And oh, wow. uh, you get to voice all of those characters and then some strange ghost who lives in a cave. And that's just such fun. It's funny, I was interviewing Natalie Haynes, the classicist, a few months ago, and uh, she had to voice an ancient Greek crow. And she said, <laughs> best fun she'd ever had narrating. So. That sounds good, an ancient Greek crow. I can hear that. <laughs> it's got a core factor, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and if I were to offer you any book in history that you could narrate, which book would you push all the other narrators out of the way to grab hold of and take to your studio? Mm, good question. Um, I'd never be asked to because it's a male author, but Joseph O'Connor has to be top of my list. Because again, like if I could write one paragraph the way that man writes, I would I would die happy. And I hope I'm going to get this right now. Ghostlight, is that the one about Bram Stoker and mm. Ellen Terry? And um, yeah, set in one of the famous West End theatres, because that's my world as well. I'll pick that one. Well, as we will find out after the break, you, as you say, have uh, quite a history of treading the boards and also appearing on the small and large screen. views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week... I'm interviewing the narrator, Aoife McMahon. Now, as we heard before the break, Aoife, you aren't merely an audiobook narrator. You've got many, many roles, leading roles, under your belt, both on stage and on the small and big screen. And our Canadian listeners probably know you best as Mary Bundle Keane in Random Passage, which I believe was your first major TV acting role and which also won you a Gemini Award in 2002? Yes, indeed. Um, that was my very first job ever. Wow. So I was still in drama school and we were due to graduate that year, but I, I left early. I left around May of that year to uh, be swept off to Newfoundland and play that wonderful feisty woman. And I am a bit of a country mouse, really, or I was. I, I live in, in London in the UK now. But at that time, I just spent my first three years ever in the city and to land in Newfoundland just felt like coming home. And it was wonderful because For Random Passage is a fictionalised account of sort of real life stories, if you like, of the first settlers there. And they built the set from scratch as it would have been. You could have actually lived in the houses. So it was beautiful. It it felt so real that as an actor, you weren't imagining. It wasn't blue screen. It wasn't any of that. You were in the landscape and in the actual homes. So that did a lot of the work for us. But it was a wonderful first experience, I have to say. And, and how long were you out there for? I think it was about five months. Wow. It was it was a good long time, and we spent most of that time in New Bonaventure, and they've kept the set there. I believe you can still see it. I'd love to go back and visit someday. And because that setup was there, so we were working with uh, local Newfoundlanders and also a crew over from Quebec and uh, amazing local catering. And the shipping news used a lot of those people and a lot of that infrastructure after us and started a little film industry there, which was great. 
And we also came back to Ireland and we filmed some of the interiors in Dublin and some of the exteriors uh, along the west coast of Ireland. Have you, have you spent other time out in Canada as well? or? Um, I went back for the Gemini Awards to Toronto and that's the last time I've been back, sadly. I, I did spend time in Canada when I was a student. I spent a summer in London, Ontario, um, quite randomly <laughs> and just doing student work. I was working in a theatre there running a show and I was busking, doing chalk drawing in the street and I was just car washing and doing every job. I had a good friend who lived there. I stayed with her and we had a really fun summer, lots of road trips. And it is a place close to my heart. But um, my long haul trips these days are mostly to Sri Lanka because my partner has a small hotel there. So um, I've been flying in that direction for the last 10 years or so. But I will get back. Uh, maybe you need to fly back the other way around the world. Then. Yeah, <laughs> I think I do. Reconnect. Do you have a preference for TV or theatre or the recording booth? Or are you just happy mixing it up? My answer to that always was, I, I really don't mind as long as the work is good. Um, I would say I prefer filming or theatre to the recording booth because they're more collaborative. Mm. You're bouncing and you're creating and you're working with other people and it's constantly changing. Between filming or theatre, that answer came to me during COVID because, of course, everything was shut down and I just started having really vivid dreams about being in a theatre rehearsal room. I was just craving it. And when I did get into a rehearsal room, once they were opened up again, it just felt like coming home. And all of these people mm -hmm. I'd never met before suddenly felt like family. And you just have that great community vibe when you're working in theatre. And this was new writing. And that's one of my favourite things, because you're really collaborating with the writer, with the people in the room, with the designers, with the musicians. And you, you're part of that process. And I was looking at the list of audiobook recordings that you made during lockdown. Had you already set your studio up before everything closed down? Were you prescient or were you there with the soundproof panels and the microphones getting everything set up in March and April 2020? I don't know that I was prescient, but I was lucky for sure, more by luck than design, because some studios I'd been working with outside of London um, had encouraged me to set up a home setup. And in uh, my old house in London that I was renting, it had good thick stone walls and I was able to do that just in a room. But then uh, we bought our own place with a little garden and there was a summer house there. So I converted it to continue that work. And uh, that's where I lived for two years yeah, in this little in this little box at the back of my garden. But we've since knocked that and built a proper studio because I was using it so much. So um, I'm, I'm now in relative luxury. Bit of carpet down on the floor and a light overhead. Yes, indeed. It's um, yeah, no, it's, it was very nicely done. We didn't build it ourselves. We commissioned it. And there's a nice growing roof as well. One of those sedum roofs. So it's nice and soft. Oh, wow. Everything is soft and absorbing and doubly, triply glazed and big, thick curtains. So it works well. I also understand from your website that you are a nascent writer. And is your studio where you put finger to keyboard or pen to paper and write the novel that you are working on at the moment? Well, the novel I'm working on is, is finished and I've, I suppose I'm about five drafts in. And we mentioned Sam Blake earlier, um, that's her nom de plume, but Vanessa O'Loughlin is her name in other incarnations of herself. And she is very active in supporting, mentoring writers, getting them together with agents. And she was kind enough to read my work and give me editorial notes. So I pulled that whole book apart and put it back together. Her notes were kind of mostly about structure. And I've had to do that in between acting and audiobook work. So it has been written in all sorts of rooms, bedrooms, living rooms and this studio as it has moved around with me. But I, yeah, I do find I need the writing process to be completely immersive. I need it to be 
cut off and, and quiet and concentrated. Yeah, absolutely. It's a world that you create for yourself initially, isn't it? And people with your own characters. And uh, I don't think having other people wandering in and out is at all helpful in that respect whilst you're actually writing it. No, indeed. I mean, when I'm doing other kinds of work, even learning lines or preparing scripts, I can have the radio on, I can, mm. you know, concentrate on other things. But I think like anybody from any form of art, be it painting or writing or, or music, will say that more than anything, you're a conduit mm. for mm. this creative force, whatever that may be, and to to make yourself available to that is the most important thing. And for that, I yeah, I need no distractions. I know that the title of the novel is This Grace. Could you give us a short synopsis or are you keeping it close to your chest? No, absolutely not. I've finished the fifth draft, as I say, and I'm just chatting with um, literary agents now. I'm going down that route to get it published. So I'm shouting from the rooftops. <laughs> So um, I'll read you a little summary. This Grace tells the story of a new age traveller family in 1980s Thatcherite Britain. Daisy, Rush and their nine-year-old daughter, Grace. In 1985, at the Battle of the Beanfield at Stonehenge, their home, their bus, gets destroyed by cops and their community is brutally torn asunder. True story that happened. Shortly afterwards, Rush, the dad, disappears. Daisy and Grace end up on the run from social services. They return to Daisy's reviled birthplace, a remote island off the north coast of Ireland. Daisy gets pulled back into a very dark family past, involving smuggling and guns and worse. And we, Grace, gets lost in a local myth of the Selkies, who shapeshift from seal to human form. She becomes convinced that she can find her dad with them, which puts her in grave danger. And then a shot in the night changes everything. Doom, doom, doom. Wow, I can't wait. And I hope that you'll be narrating the audiobook version yourself. I think it's told from the point of view of nine-year-old Grace, who is mm -hmm. an English New Age Traveller kid, and Daisy, who is from an Irish-speaking island off the north coast of Ireland. So I think I would do Daisy's voice and uh, get somebody else in to do Grace's. Now, as you say, Sam Blake has been very supportive of you. And I know from talking to her that she would agree with so many other writers that the best way to learn your craft as an author is to read other people's work. You obviously read more than most, but how do you read for pleasure? Does it sometimes feel like a busman's holiday? No is the short answer. As long as I'm not on a screen, even if I've recorded all day, I can throw myself into a book and turn the, the paper pages, which is how I like to read, and get lost in, in that world. And yeah, I think Sam Blake is exactly right there because it is reading that is going to teach you about other humans and about yourself mm. on reflection, about other worlds, history and styles and vocabulary and how to play with language. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that's Sam's advice, uh, which you concur with. What would your advice be for anybody wanting to get into the world of narrating audiobooks? I think generally people come into the audiobook part of this industry from related parts of the industry. So a lot of narrators are actors because there are so many crossover skills, but not necessarily. Um, if you think you'd be good at it, don't let that put you off. You can approach people with a voice reel if you don't know anyone in the industry. And that can be voiceover agents, or you can approach some studios directly. And there's good guidance online if you just Google what to put on a voice reel. It's generally a few adverts, a few short clips from different kinds of narration. And 
anything else that grabs your fancy, a bit of a, a video game. These days, I think mostly people are hired to remain close to their own truth, to their own voice. So I would say only do accents that you're fluent in, that you're very comfortable with. But do try and differentiate the different aspects of your voice. So you could try reading a nonsense children's poem and then you might do a radio appeal for a charity, for example. Mm. So just those different parts of your voice and different parts of your character and showcase the best of you. Don't try to be anybody else. And, and I think we can hear from that answer that actually the industry is looking to diversify as well. There are a lack of narrators with certain regional voices or heritage voices. Yes, yes, I think that's true. Correct. We're at the beginning of, of this process of, of opening it up, but we, we are taking steps. We're beginning to get there. Now, I learned a really good trick of the trade from a narrator when I was working in the Talking Book Studios. And she heard my tummy rumbling halfway through the interview I was doing, and she whipped a banana out of her handbag and gave it to me and said, that'll stop your tummy rumbling. And now I have an emergency banana in my desk drawer for exactly that kind of eventuality. <laughs> Do you have any similar tricks of the trade? Always have a banana of travel. That's true. First rule. Um, but for clackiness, you know, if your mouth gets a bit dry and it gets a bit on mic, that can be very difficult to, to listen to. So a green apple, you don't eat it, you just bite into it and suck the juice. And that's the only thing that takes clackiness away. Especially if you've made the mistake of eating chocolate or having a coffee or one of those things you're not supposed to do when you're recording. Uh, a green apple just kind of cleans that sound up. Brilliant. Well, I'll get the whole fruit bowl next to my... Yes, indeed. <laughs> you're five a day. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, before I let you go, uh, presumably back to recording another fantastic audio book for us all, um, I would love to hear the three books of your life. So if it's okay, Aoife McMahon, can I ask you, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Wow, I've picked books. I'm trying to think, was there one when I was a youngster? We grew up with Aesop's fables, and a lot of them have stuck with me. And also just the, the regular fairy tales, which have led me in later life to love Angela Carter and her grown-up dark reimaginings of them. And when I was a teenager, I think Judy Bloom, because nobody in 1980s Ireland was talking about sex or your bodies or relationship. And it was just great to have somebody who seemed to understand what you were going through. So those are probably my young influences. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd love to curl up with and reread? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously tough because there are so many, but I think for me, it has to be Jeanette Winterson. And obviously it was hard to choose one of her titles because Sexing the Cherry is also one that I've dipped into again and again. When thinking about this, I, I came to books that I've read time and again. Another one would be Wuthering Heights, which I don't know how many times I've read it, but, you know, by Emily Bronte, obviously. It's interesting when you haven't come to a book for maybe five or ten years, maybe, and you reread it and uh, you see it differently, but you see how you've changed as well in, in how you interpret that book. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think probably the one that's moved me most in re the recent couple of years would be Where the Crawdads Sing. Is that Delia Owens? Am I getting her name right? I think it's since been made into a movie, but I would encourage anybody to go to the book because the world that she creates, the character that she creates, the mystery, the connection to nature. I do tend to love a book that's about an, an outsider who finds their their way through in in, I don't want to give too much away, but maybe in unexpected ways. And again, her writing is sublime. I just can't wait for her next one. And at the moment, I'm reading Jess Kidd, The Night Ship. I'm about halfway through and it's gorgeous. 
And my favourite one of hers, I think, has to be Things in Jars, which is set in sort of an imagined historic London. And it's just so juicy and atmospheric and dark and sexy and exciting and thrilling. So, um, yeah, wrap your ears around that one. I didn't narrate it, by the way, but I think she's wonderful. Well, those sound like some fantastic recommendations. Aoife McMahon, thank you so much for letting me get to know the voice behind so many of my favourite books a bit better and for introducing us to some of the tricks of the trade and, and the process of, of recording the books that we all love so much. I can only hope that I'll be able to invite you back onto the show to discuss your own novel, This Grace, in the not-too-distant future. I certainly hope so. I'm putting my trust out there. Then I'll find it a good home. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Aoife McMahon, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.